You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO Magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, coming to you from London. And my guest this week is Francesca Minerva. Francesca is a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Politics and International Studies at Warwick University. Her research focuses on applied philosophy, including lookism, which is discrimination against the unattractive, conscientious objection, abortion, academic freedom, and cryonics. She's also worked on the philosophy of death and personal identity. Um, and she is the author of the book, The Ethics of Cryonics, published by Paul Grave Macmillan. Francesca is also the co-editor and co-founder of the Journal of Controversial Ideas. Um, Francesca is coming to us from Oxford today. Welcome, Francesca. Hello, and thank you for inviting me today. My pleasure. Um, I wanted to start by asking you about why, how and why um, you decided to launch the new journal. So I know that I was, I know that you had a, a very bad experience yourself when you and a co-author wrote a controversial article that led to a great deal of um uh, you received a great deal of personal abuse and even death threats and things. Um, I know that was one of the um, one of the kind of catalysts for the journal. Uh, maybe you could start there, and then we could talk more generally about why this kind of journal is needed and is important. Yes. Um, so you, you you're right. So it started with a personal experience um, that that I had in 2012 when, um, together with Alberto Giubilini, I co-authored a, a paper um, on what we called afterbirth abortion, um, which is um, in a sense infanticide, uh, in the journal Medical Ethics. Um, so in a um, peer-reviewed um, biomedical journal, um, considered one of the best journals in my field. So uh, after, soon after, we, we published the, this paper in which we argued that um, the moral status of newborns is not different um, from the moral status of um fetuses and we explained um, why we made this argument which was based on other arguments in philosophy made by other philosophers previously so it was not an entirely original point we were just um, applying some of the conclusion to a different a different case um, so but we were anyway uh, addressing one of the main arguments in favor against abortion that is the argument of the moral status of of the fetus or the newborn. Um, anyway, the, 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 
the paper um, got a lot of attention um, and I was really unexpected um, because I was not aware at the, at the time. I don't think that any other academic paper had attracted so much attention from, from the public. So within days from the publication, um, this was February, March 2012, I believe, um, we started receiving um, many, many um, angry emails and then uh, a lot of online magazines and newspapers and blogs started talking about it and um, they also attracted like hundreds of thousands of uh, comments um, which in turn also <laughs> um, kept attention on us so we got even more uh, emails which were like including death threats and insults and um, very detailed descriptions about how we should have been killed. Um, so that that was um, that was quite scary at the beginning. But um, I have to be honest, the death threats and the angry emails were not the worst. Uh, the worst the worst thing that happened as a consequence of. Uh, after publishing that, that article um, and indeed I started soon to be concerned about the implication for, for my career um, and I was right in thinking that um, it didn't uh, really help me and on one occasion at least I was openly told uh, from the head of of a um, department I had applied a job um, with that they couldn't offer me the job because people in the department didn't like me and I was too divisive. Um, in a blog, somebody was talking about a person they couldn't hire because she read in a very controversial paper on abortion. So as far as I'm aware, I've lost two jobs to this controversy, but probably more. These were just the two occasions in which I've been told and have applied for like hundreds of academic jobs. So um, so that started bothering me and I started wondering about academic freedom. And from that experience, I started writing some papers. I, I published a paper in, uh, in bioethics about um, this experience and about... Um, the situation with academic freedom and how this the fact that papers academic papers were misrepresented uh, by online magazines i mean there were there were articles on i think it was in the sun saying academics want to slaughter babies obviously i never <laughs> written or thought that you know it was a good idea to slaughter babies um, so I was arguing that this misrepresentation of academic papers was damaging academia and uh, limiting academic freedom because uh, what the general public understood from these um, articles was that, you know, it was a very bad interpretation of what we'd actually argued. So I was worried about public reactions because that, in my experience, had been the most intimidating and scary thing. But then uh, years passed by and I started noticing that the threats to academic freedom were not coming mainly or exclusively from angry 
people in the general public, so non-philosophers in my case or non-academics, but they were also coming from within academia. And um, actually thinking that tendency was even more worrying because also um, people started telling me, oh, you know, you're so brave. There are papers I would like to write, but I'm going to wait until I'm retired or I'm tenured. And this started happening more and more often. And then at some point, um, Rebecca Tubell uh, wrote a paper um, published in the feminist journal Ipatia about transracialism. She was arguing in this paper that if people can identify as a different gender, uh, then they should be able to identify as a different race or something along those lines. And um, academia, academics reacted very badly. There were petitions and um, paper was retracted. And then from then, it started happening more and more frequently. Now I have, I know, there are maybe hundreds of cases like this of, you know, petition, not hundreds, but like 30, 40, 50 petitions um, against academics from other academics and trying to return the paper, to get them fired, to to do things that are not compatible, uh, I believe, with academic freedom. So at some point during 2015, um, I started thinking already about uh, the possibility of submitting papers pseudonymously to journals. Um, I'd written about it, and and I started talking with Peter Singer and Jeff McMahon about starting a journal uh, of controversial ideas where people could, if they wanted, uh, submit papers anonymously or pseudonymously. And uh, and finally, in 2020, um, we we launched the journal. So it took almost five years to set up this journal, um, which is now accepting submissions. Finally, when is the first um, when is the first issue coming out? We don't know um, yet because we um, want to have enough good papers to publish a first issue. So far, we've accepted three papers, um, which I don't think is enough for a first issue. But So it depends in part on um, the papers that are sent to us, how good they are, um, how quick the peer review is, and so on and so forth. But I would think that by the end of this year, maybe, yeah, now we're in September, maybe December, hopefully, uh, we'll have the first issue. So I, I, I've been reading your bioethics paper, and you talk about the, um, the advantages of publishing under a pseudonym as opposed to publishing anonymously. Could you say more about that and, and explain how it will work at the journal? Yes. So um, the idea is that uh, people who are concerned about um, the negative impact of publishing the paper with their real name, including like death threats or petitions against them, um, can submit a paper completely anonymously. So um, of some of the papers submitted anonymously to us, um, I don't know who the author is. Uh, so it's completely anonymous. Though we give the option to the anonymous authors to reveal their name to um, a member of the editorial board and 
so that um, in case they want to claim the authorship of the paper at a later time, they can do that. Um, and also to be able to, uh, if somebody claims the authorship of the paper, to be able to say that that's not true because we know who the real author is. Though there is no obligation, if somebody doesn't care about claiming the ownership, the authorship of the paper at a later time, and if they're not worried about other people um, claiming the authorship, that they can stay completely anonymous. Also, we are setting up a different system so that it will be possible for us not to know who the author is um, while being able to um, to guarantee their uh, authorship at a later time. But that's um, an online system that we're still setting up, so it's not available yet, but it's something we're trying to do. Um, so the advantage is some advantages are pretty obvious. So if you write a controversial paper, um, you're not going to receive uh, death threats, um, which to some people are, are quite unsettling and stressful. Um, the other advantage is that you can avoid to uh, get petitions signed against you to get you fired. Uh, to get you demoted, to uh, have your paper retracted. Also, we're not going to retract papers because they are controversial. Um, so we write in the website of the journal, which is journalcontroversialideas.org, that the, the, the retraction uh, of the paper is something we would do only if there is some serious um, issue, like uh, the data was fabricated or there was plagiarism that wasn't detected, but not because of controversy. Um, so the, the person can avoid to have all this <laughs> hatred thrown at them. And I think that so this is the advantage for the person writing the paper, for the author of the paper. But what I what we are mostly concerned about is the benefit for academia. Um, we believe that the debate in academia has been um, held back by fear of controversy. Um, this is something that a lot of academic academics experience, um, and you know there is some evidence that, <laughs> as we just said, that you know you can um, have quite a few problems if you publish a controversial paper. And therefore, we think that there are a lot of interesting questions that are not being asked publicly and a lot of interesting answers uh, which are not being provided because people are too scared. And the goal of academia is to get closer to, to the truth, to find out the truth, or get, getting a bit closer to it. And if people are scared of discussing controversial ideas or some ideas um, it becomes way more difficult to to find this truth, and we, we think this is this is bad. This is against the telos of, of academia. But also, when some ideas are not really discussed out in, in the sun, under the sun, um, they can become, in a way, more dangerous. They can be they can become radicalized. If you have a silly idea and you're allowed to share this idea in public, then people can easily refute and say, oh, this is a silly idea. Like you, the, the, the data you're looking at is wrong. This hypothesis is wrong because of this and that. And then you can change your mind. But if people are not allowed to, to, to talk about their ideas in public, 
um, as it often happens now also on social media, there is quite a bit of censorship, that they don't get this feedback that helps them to understand their reasoning is, is mistaken. So they cannot correct their view and they can become more radicalized. So there are small groups of people discussing these ideas and they have this echo chamber in which they only get positive feedback to their ideas. So we think there is a problem in general with um, trying to censor ideas and it's much healthier for a society to have those ideas out there and, uh, and dis- have them discussed. Mm, yeah. What about um, what about the kind of pushback against the ideas? So if you want to, uh, one potential problem I can see is that if I disagree with something that's been written in the journal and I want to challenge the author um, to defend those views in more detail, I don't have an easy way of doing that if I don't know the author's identity. Um, do you have a, a mechanism for that kind of feedback and exchange? Yes, so we plan to have uh, commentaries to the papers. Um, so people can send a comment or a, a paper in response to another paper and um, the author of the original paper will be encouraged um, to, to reply. So we think that the exchange of ideas can can still happen because the author will be there and there is a platform for these ideas to be discussed and um, and we think that, that that's that's what is going to happen um, some people have objected that if you don't know who the person is then it is more difficult to engage with their ideas but i kind of think it is the opposite and in a way that's how academia is is Instructor. So we have peer review, and when you peer review a paper, you don't know who the author is, and we think that is best not to know who is the author of a certain paper because then we can um, address the ideas in it without thinking, oh, I really dislike that person. Oh, I met that person at a conference. I thought he was annoying or something. When you're dealing just with ideas and that's all you have, you can focus on that. But sometimes knowing who the person is is a distraction either because you're biased toward this person is your friend or because you don't like the person and um, you you tend to attribute maybe views that you think they should be attributed on the basis of the things you've said and so on. But we think it's best to have arguments discussed independently from the person uh, who has written the paper or has these ideas. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's obviously an issue of self-censorship as well. If you know that um, certain topics are liable to get you into trouble, you will just steer clear of those topics. Or certain ideas are going to be controversial, you're just not going to express those ideas. People, When, when people think about censorship, they tend to think about a, a kind of post-publication censorship, I guess. Um, and so they mistakenly think of this as being a person rightly receiving harsh crit- criticism for their ideas. But I I mean, my guess is that most censorship is pre-publication, that yes. most people are simply steering clear of things yes. that they are worried will get them in trouble. Yes, definitely. Um, so there is self-censorship, and I've lost count of the people who have told me that they self-censor themselves, that they're 
scared about publishing some papers to discuss some ideas. Um, so, um, of course, I don't have any data, but um, if my experience matters for anything, I, I heard this from many from many colleagues. Um, the other censorship, so the I think, and that's the main issue, and um, and also it expands to hiring policies. Like, who wants to hire a troublemaker when you can hire a person with a similar CV? or maybe slightly less good, or you know, who is not a troublemaker. So there is a problem of selecting also people who are not trouble, troublemakers, uh, who don't have controversial ideas, because you don't want to have petitions from students, and you don't want to have petitions from you know, other colleagues, because you hired that person. Um, uh, we, we all know cases of that kind of petitions um, from students that um ended with uh, the person being been fired and um universities don't want that so i think that from now on or like in the past years they've just been avoiding to hire these people um so but also like journals i think they become more concerned about what they publish um i think that um it has become more difficult to publish very controversial paper in a mainstream academic journal. That's why I also think our journal is is a good thing because we offer um, a platform for these papers that under normal circumstances should have been published in in an academic journal for that specific discipline, but they can't be published because the the editors are worried about the consequences. Yeah, I think it's very worrying to see that papers are being retracted not on the grounds that they're in that the information is incorrect, um, but uh, papers that were accepted after peer review and which the editors clearly felt were worth publishing um, are being retracted from journals because people too many people were offended by them. Yeah. Yeah, this has happened recently in philosophy and it happens in other disciplines, I think. Mm, Um, Yeah, well, Rebecca Tuval's paper is a case in point. Um, That that paper was accepted for Hypatia and there were, um, as far as I know, at the time, no major objections to it. The editors themselves didn't find it offensive. But because people on social media found it offensive, they removed it from the journal. And that seems like a kind of peer review by Twitter, (laughs) which which doesn't... uh, And I mean, I think it also... It might not even have been the majority of people who felt that way. It's just probably an angry, vocal minority of tweeters um, who... Who managed to get the pa- get? Who managed to get papers retracted? Managed to get people fired or not hired, etc. Yes, yes. I think it is a minority actually, but it's a very loud minority. And the problem, to be honest, I want to be clear on this: the problem is not people getting outraged on Twitter or on social media or starting petitions. People have the right to express their ideas. Um, as much as they want on any platform they want um, 
I'm not against the Twitter mob. I would never be part of it. I I disagree with it. But, you know, I think it's, it's a right to free speech and to have your opinions. The problem are the universities, are the journals, whoever gets scared of these reactions. You know, if you are head of university, uh, vice chancellor, and your students have a petition because they want that person to be fired, you should just ignore it. Um, if the procedure to hire the person was regular, there was no irregularity, it was legal, the person is considered a good academic by their colleagues, the fact that the students disagree, that's their problem. Um, but now, or like same goes with papers that are published. The problem is the people who give in to this, um, to these reactions not the reaction themselves. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's a vicious circle because then these people realize they have this power. Look, we have the power to get people fired and to get papers retracted and to, you know, <laughs> cause all this. So why should, should we stop doing that? They have no reason to stop. Um, but that's not the job of universities, of academic journals, to give in to protest. That's, that's not how it works. That's not how you give good education. Because these people are paying you money also to receive an education, and mainly to receive an education, not to have their preferences satisfied. So I think the main problem is um, the lack of um, proper response from, from universities and from... Um, people who are in charge. Mm. And how do you think that social media has changed all of this? I want to read a a short passage, actually, from your article, um, an article you wrote, uh, which is called Rethinking Academic Freedom, which I'll link to also. Uh, Because I feel you give a very good summary here, and maybe you want to comment a bit more um, on this. Uh, you, you write, the methods the media are currently used to limit academic freedom in ways that were not available 20 years ago. For example, the internet carries the discussion far outside the former boundaries of the academic discussion. Our interlocutors not only include other academics, but the much wider group of people who read newspapers and surf the web. The more people read your work, the more likely it is that someone will feel outraged. Whereas in the past, people who disagreed with an idea had to take the time to write a comment or a response, send it via a post office to the editor of a journal or newspaper who would select the publishable responses, or just to the author of the paper and go through a series of procedures that might discourage them from sending such comments. They can now do it while sitting on their sofa and in just a few seconds. Whatever is written on the internet is immortal and irrespective of whether the information about a person is later proved to be false or even ignominious, it will stay accessible to everyone forever. In the past, information in newspapers would no longer be readily accessible after a while. Um, so you write that, but elsewhere you do also say that you think that there are certain um, standards which academics should hold themselves to when they're posting on social media. Um, 
Could you say more about that, that kind of, those two conflicting considerations? So, um, the, um, yeah, one, one important point is that um, we are not talking anymore among academics only, as it used to be in the past. And that's a good thing, because um, the job of academics is, is also to, um, to spread the, the results of the research um, to, to the wider public. So I think, I think that's, that's a good thing that we can do that and that we're doing that. Um, there is a problem uh, with how this information is transferred from the academic debate to the public debate. I think there is a problem with um, scientific journalism. Like it used to be the case that there were a few articles reporting, simplifying the results of a scientific paper, of an academic paper. Now that the job is not done very well, and anyway, it doesn't get a lot of attention, but you find um, a lot of very distorted representation of what is being said in academic papers and that's a problem so we have a problem of not fake news but extremely altered news um so a, a lot of these outlets where people read supposedly abstract or like um, summaries of academic papers are not really faithful to what is written in in the academic paper so i think that academics have a need to you know, intervene and, uh, you know, make sure that they do whatever they can to faithfully summarize and describe what they've done in their research in, in lay terms, um, as to avoid this misinterpretation. Of course, if <laughs> if you have um, magazine new papers, newspapers anyway want to attack you, no matter how much you try to do that, they will still misrepresent you. So in a way, it's, it's, it, it's difficult to get... Uh, that message through if you have people who are just trying to find a monster um, to accuse of any crime, um, thought crime. Um, but again, yes, we have the responsibility of, of talking to, to, to other people who are not, not necessarily academic and to make sure we can be understood clearly. On the same level, the responsibility of what you, I think there is a responsibility when you post something on on social media as an academic to make sure that your area of competence is is clear. So, I my area of competence bioethic, bioethics and philosophy, and those are the areas where I can write about and I feel confident. In other areas, I may tweet about or I'm interested, in, but I'm not really an expert. But there is there is a difficulty there in understanding where um, you know what are the things you're an expert on, and it's difficult for the public to understand that in, on some occasions you're speaking as an expert, and on some occasions you're not speaking as an expert. Um, it's this can create quite a lot of confusion, and I think it's also our responsibility to make sure that you know we're clear. This is not my area of expertise. This is my opinion, but this is not what I do for a living. On these other things, instead, this is my opinion, and I am an expert. It would be nice to have that distinction a bit clearer in in social media, though. A lot of social media like platform like Twitter don't really allow for using many words and to make this difference very very explicit. Um, but I do feel the there's a responsibility of speaking about about my research and to a wider 
public, which is not just my colleagues. And um, and I think that we need to learn that. Academics were not really used to do that, but now it's it's a skill we need we need to develop. So I think that that that's also important. Um, the problem though is that sometimes um, there are these Twitter mobs and very aggressive reactions that are completely out of control. You cannot really do much to to interact um, with people when they are extremely angry. And I think the problem is that, as you said that right from that passage, that now it takes too little, in a way, too little time to be able to interact with someone. It takes a second for someone to reply to my tweet or to... Um, to a blog I read and say, oh, you're disgusting, I hate you, and you're completely wrong. And that's less like a vomiting emotions on, on other, other people. And of course, I cannot engage with hundreds of people um, telling me I'm disgusting and they want to hate me. I mean, I don't have enough time. And I think I should spend my time uh, doing other things. Um, so that that kind of reactions are um, are difficult to manage for the single academic, but again, as I was saying before, that's where the university as an institution should should intervene and um, and say clearly that these kind of reactions are not uh, really going to affect anything with respect to the uh, individual academic. Um, so it, it, it is a difficult balance of new responsibilities. Uh, the university didn't have the responsibility of, in a way, protecting or ignoring academics from angry mobs. Um, academics didn't have the responsibility of interacting with people who are not academics and not experts. Now they have it. Uh, so it is a bit more complicated than it used to be but i think that overall this is this is a good thing i think that you know academia being open to feedback and comments from everyone is is good if who is in charge is able to ignore the angry mobs which so far hasn't really happened Hmm. so i know that there's um this is an argument that i i don't agree with but um, but what do you say to people who say that um, the kind of pushback that that people like Rebecca Tuvel are getting is from people who have historically been oppressed or powerless, who've been denied access to higher education and to the academy, and therefore are underrepresented or not represented in academia itself and on the editorial boards of academic journals, etc. And therefore, their only way of getting their point of view heard is to write petitions calling for people to be fired or um, get together Twitter mobs, etc. Yes, I think that's what the background of each person um, when interacting with other people or interacting with a paper um, is not relevant. What matters is their argument. Do you have a good argument? Um, if not, um, the, the, 
the fact that you know you feel um offended by something hurt by something you find something irritating um is not um is not relevant to an academic debate or to a public debate um there are lots of things that um can offend different people you know, different people can offend by a lot of things and 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 that's bad you know it would be better if we lived in a world where people are not offended and um where nobody had to be exposed to um to to, to something that they find distasteful but we are in academia and we as a society we need to um focus on the arguments and the arguments are objective and the arguments are either good or bad um and there are things that are true or false and and this is the beauty of it <laughs> and that that's why i was saying also before um when you asked me about how can we interact with an author that is anonymous or pseudonymous we don't know who they are and i think the same applies to to the angry mobs and to the inter- their interaction with an author um what matters in these debates um, is the strength of the argument itself, not the person who is putting forward a certain argument. I guess I could push back against that a bit, um, playing devil's advocate here, that there may be perhaps such a thing as a, kind of, as a moral information hazard. Um, certain topics which whose investigation and the kinds of conclusions that are liable to be drawn from them are so likely to um, to lead people to um, discriminate against members of certain groups or even to um, instigate violence against those groups. And you talk about this yourself. I'm, I'm going to read another short passage here. You say that some misunderstandings can generate very negative consequences. J.S. Mill famously said that an opinion that corn dealers are starvers of the poor or that private property is robbery ought to be unmolested when simply circulated through the press, but may just inc- but, but may incur just punishment when delivered orally to an excited mob assembled before the house of a corn dealer. At a time when information travels faster than any time before, and any opinion can reach far more people, it becomes very difficult to understand whether we are talking to a general public or to an excited mob assembled before the house of a corn dealer. Um, and I think I'm thinking about something like, so for example, um, uh, an, uh, um, a study showing Uh, a study that hasn't been misunderstood, but that uh, aims to show and perhaps succeeds in showing or appears to succeed in showing that immigrants are far more likely to commit violent crime than natives in, say, the UK. So I can imagine how that kind of study could provide ammunition for people who um, are xenophobic and hostile towards immigrants, and it might actually um, in the wrong hands, it could end up endangering people's lives because it because of the kind of hatred that certain demagogues could use could could 
use it to drum up? Yeah, no, that's that's a good question, and I think it's it's a serious concern. So, one thing is that I think that there are some limits to the information that uh, can and should be shared on an academic journal. But I think I have um, maybe disagree about what are these limits. So I think if you are uh, if you want to publish an article in which you explain how to build uh, how to create biological weapons uh, in your home that shouldn't be published so anything that is like a safety hazard and represents like an immediate threat or danger to people um, like in that case of the biological weapon that that shouldn't be published it would be irresponsible to publish it for other things like a study suggesting uh, that some groups um, are more likely to commit crime than other groups um, I think that the, 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 there is a difference there. So um, this doesn't seem to represent like immediate um, danger for, for anyone. Like it's not like being in front of the house of the corn dealer in Mill's example. Um, of course, uh, it, uh, it can bring about some negative consequence for some people in terms of prejudice and, and bias. And this happens with a lot of with a lot of research, and you know, with a lot of statistics um, of this kind. Um, discrimination against some groups of people is 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 really is really common, and it, in all societies, and it's definitely not <laughs> not a pleasant phenomenon. Like, um, I come from the south of Italy, which is the poorest part of Italy, and for the first five, six years, actually seven years of my life, um, I lived with my family in the north of Italy. And at that time, um, that um, was considered like being an immigrant. So people from the south um, were really were considered criminals or like dirty, poor. Uh, a lot of apartments were not rented out to people from the south of Italy. And in some places you could not even access, you were not welcome. Um, and I experienced a lot of that. And I can say, of course, it's not it's not pleasant. But if there were studies showing that um, there is a higher uh, rate of crime among southern Italian living in the north of Italy or anywhere from southern Italian, um, even though this could bring about more discrimination against people from my group, so even though this could make me feel more discriminated and have some bad consequences for me. I don't think that would be a good reason to withdraw this piece of information that can have other useful um, uses. Said this, I think that what we have to work on is making people understand that, you know, these studies, these statistics are completely meaningless when it comes to the individual level. So you have to know individual for themselves. Um, and you know, judging a whole group of people on the basis of some statistics is not the right way to 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 approach anyone. Some of this information can be useful, for instance, uh, to the police or to the governments and so on and so forth. And I think it can also be useful to try to understand what is the reason for this phenomenon. Why are, for instance, people in the southern region, I'm keeping, making an example, I don't know if it's true, maybe it was believed to be true at some point, People in the south of Italy are more uh, keen on committing crime than people coming from the north of Italy. Is it why? Is it because they are poorer? 
So then we have to, to address poverty. Is it because they have some, I don't know, cultural tradition of being more violent? Then we have to address that. Um, if we never talk about why people from the south of Italy, in theory, are more violent and more criminal than people in the north of Italy, then we can never get to the bottom of the reason why it is the case, and then we can never solve the problem. Um, and I think that it may be worth paying the price for people um, like me or people born in my generation to have suffered maybe a bit more of this unfair discrimination, unjustified discrimination, if then overall the problem can be solved. Also, I mean, if people suspect that this is the case and they're not being told the truth about this data, they might become more aggressive. They might start believing that, you know, there are, the situation is actually much worse. Say that, you know, in reality, people from the south of Italy are only 5% more criminal, commit more crime than people in the north. If you never talk about this data, people might say, oh, it's 50% more, 60% more. So I think we need to have an honest conversation. Um, and honest conversation and knowing the truth is the only way we have to get to solve problems. Because by knowing how things are, then we can figure out a way to change things. But if you don't know how things are, how can we change things? Um, and if it is true that people from the south of Italy commit more crimes and we all benefit from living in a society with less crime, then we should get to the bottom of it. Mm. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I've, I've noticed that um, when controversial work comes out, when very controversial work comes out, it really receives a lot of very close attention from critics. So I, I think that the danger that, for example, Charles Murray's recent uh, book, Human Diversity, which I, I read recently, um, I think the chance that that book would come out and just um, and just be accepted at face value with no thoroughgoing critiques was was always zero. Um, the fear that that by by openly publishing controversial views means that those views will just be quietly accepted and sneak back into the status quo or sneak into the kind of status quo opinion. It just seems extremely bizarre to me. I noticed, you know, many of the people whom I follow, the academics I follow on Twitter, um, re are reading Charles Murray's work, for example, with a tooth comb, but are making no criticisms at all of completely and patently ludicrous things coming out in their field, which, in their respective fields, um, which come from political stances, which are inspired by political stances they agree with. So I think that it's that kind of fear that there is a moral info hazard here because ideas that could be hijacked by bigots, etc., will come out and they will never be questioned. That seems quite a, an absurd idea to me, an absurd fear. Yes, uh, I mean, the... the Controversial ideas are always going to be under more scrutiny than non-controversial ideas. And and I think it's a good thing. I think that we it's good to have a higher standard for controversial ideas because, you know, they can they can have more dangerous implications. So we want to be really, really sure. 
that we got something right. And I think it's good that people give their feedback and, you know, they get, you know, they get interested in things. I don't think it's a good thing they get angry, but, you know, I still defend the right to get angry. I think the, the, the problem is that when people are silenced because they have controversial ideas and then these ideas cannot be really discussed anymore. Um, I haven't read the last book by Charles Murray, but I know that, you know, he, he had a lot of, lot of problems related to his previous book and i don't think i don't think this is a good thing for for society at, at such when we get into this habit because it has become a habit of silencing people we we disagree with um but you know you you are right and i think it is a good thing that they you know there is so much scrutiny and that people you know, you can also expect that, you know, some people will be pay more attention and scrutinize some ideas that they are opposed to because they dislike them. And some other people will scrutinize some other ideas they dislike. So there is overall a balance. But the problem is that right now, it's right now, some of the people who will criticize a certain group of ideas are just canceled. So there is no balance anymore, because then some ideas are not checked at all that's yeah that's dangerous i think they also like not checking ideas even if they sound like pretty straightforward they're not really controversial um i think there is a danger in, in that like it's it's a silly example but the other day i watched this documentary about dietary recommendations uh from the 50s onwards about eating low fat you know, that doesn't seem to be like a very controversial idea and people accepted it. And it's only like 50 years later, we realized that actually that recommendation of eating low fat and high carb uh, probably had a lot of bad implications for the health of millions of people. And, um, you know, it, it turns out that an idea, an idea that seemed to be pretty controversial, pretty safe, not really worth debating much, turned out to be extremely dangerous. So it's it's good to keep attention, to pay attention to ideas that are not just controversial in that respect, because, you know, <laughs> you never know. So you want to have a lot of people talking and disagreeing. You don't want to have one voice. You want to have a lot of people having different opinions. I think that's beautiful. It's important and it's absolutely necessary um, to, to improve the, the well-being of, of a society. Yeah, absolutely. Um, talking of controversial ideas, well, I don't know how controversial this idea is, but I also wanted to talk to you about your work on lookism, discrimination against unattractive people. How did you become inter first become interested in this topic? Um, I think I got interest in it um, a few years ago, like maybe it was two thousand and eight or nine, uh, because I happened to read some studies about um, the benefit of being, uh, advantages of being good looking, some studies in psychology, and it occurred to me, oh my God, it must be actually so nice for people who are extremely attractive, just um, to, to get everything they want, whenever they want. So I started like, you know, just for fun, I started reading this research. But then at some point, the evidence that actually beautiful people had um, had an easier life 
then unattractive people started um, becoming almost um, upsetting. Like I didn't realize at the beginning that the difference was so large and that being attractive or unattractive could make such a huge difference and have such a huge impact on, on someone's life. So I started working on it from a more uh, philosophical perspective and started inquiring. And then I started working um, on it almost full time since 2015. So tell me about some of the ways in which it impacts people's lives. Yes, it is. It starts very early on. So there are some studies um, showing that um, cute children um, have get more attention from their parents and are considered less annoying when they cry from both their family members and strangers. And then this goes on through kindergarten and then um, primary school. So the more attractive children tend to make more friends and we know that children tend to prefer attractive, uh, attractive children, beautiful children. We also know that um, children only a few weeks old um, seem to agree about who is attractive or not with older people. So they had these experiments in which an adult person um, judges how attractive somebody is and then um, they show this person to a very young child of a few weeks and they know that if children stare for a long time at a certain face, it means they are a certain thing, it means that they like it. And if they start crying, it means that they don't like it. And they've noticed that two children, very young children, tend to agree with adults about who is attractive or not. Um, but we also know this from how children interact with each other. Um, as I said this before, I said this before in other uh, on other occasions, but one of the most um, disheartening papers I read was this study on obese children and how they were rated by their peers. And it turned out that um, obese children were rated as um, less sociable and um, were um, had less friends or like had a less social capital than other children and they were also um, considered um, less um, sociable and had you know less social capital than disabled children and by disabled children so the stigma attached to to be obese is something that is really underestimated and um, and you know it's comparable to that suffered by disabled people or according to this study even even more is even worse and I, I assume that's because people are considered responsible for their own weight, but not for their own disability. And yeah, and, and these effects of, you know, being good looking, um, the advantage of being good looking keep escalating through the whole life. So there are economic differences. Um, so in terms of income between attractive people and unattractive people, uh, chances of being promoted, chances of being hired, chances of finding a partner, uh, chances of winning elections, um, how the doctors treat you. Um, I, it's, it, it, it is really quite an ubiquitous effect with different 
with different magnitude. So, um, of course, you can expect in a romantic relationship, it has more impact than in doctor-patient relationship, but still, it is it is there. Mm. It's really extraordinary to me that we we discriminate so strongly, I guess partly unconsciously, but I definitely notice people quite consciously discriminating, um, saying things like, uh, disregarding somebody's argument, for example, on the basis that the person is ugly. Yeah. Um, so very frequently on Twitter, I see people, and by people, I include here academics, journalists, public intellectuals, um, who will uh, quote quotes an opinion that somebody has voiced, and in order to dismiss that opinion, they just uh, put up a picture of the person's face. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. And to be honest, I'm definitely not a fan of Donald Trump, but it happens with him as well. And, you know, I think if you don't think it's it's justifiable to do that with people you like, then it's not justifiable to do with people you dislike. And so, you know, you see that a lot with politicians, and but then it's like everyone. And I think it's just so irrelevant that nobody should do it. You know, you can attack... Trump or any other politician or any other person on the basis of what they do, what they say, how they argue, but not on the basis of their appearance. Why would that be relevant or not? Um, but yeah, it is considered somehow permissible, at least for some for some people, at least for some categories. And yeah, I agree. It's, <laughs> it's absolutely puzzling how people think it's a decent thing to do. It does seem that politics is one of the few areas in which you can, uh, one of the few kind of public arenas in which you can be very successful despite not being particularly good looking. So looking at at the Houses of Parliament, that is one area of kind of successful public life in which I don't think people are more attractive than average. Though there are some studies suggesting that um, the chances of being elected if you are the more attractive candidate um, are actually higher. Now, I don't remember the number exactly, and the, but there were quite a few studies suggesting that, especially when people don't know exactly what what is your view on a certain topic, what kind of politicians you are, and maybe they're not really competent when it comes to politics, they tend to vote for the most attractive uh, candidate. So even in politics, has been noticed that um, there are, in the elections, uh, especially when people are not very competent, the more attractive candidate tends to win. I was I'm I'm rereading Middlemarch at the moment, and I'm so struck by the the what the way in which George Eliot describes phys- describes the physical appearance of characters. Um, it's not just her. This was a very general practice until right up into, I guess, the middle of the 20th century, that in novels, when you are introducing a character, you use the description of their looks to say something about their personality. Yeah. So you say she had a, an op- the open brow of somebody who is very intellectually curious and open-minded and a great reader and she had the 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 her the soft blue mm. eyes that somebody compassionate would have um or you know her her mouth was 
pinched and thin from uh, being so me being so gossipy and mean and bitchy and it's um we no longer do that but we seem to retain that same yeah. prejudice and it's extraordinary to see Elliot doing that who is in other respects probably um what one, uh, one of the most psychologically insightful writers of the entire century yeah. and one of the most humane um and most wisest about human nature and who was also herself um very ugly um uh and therefore should at least in uh, from her own experience have known that there's no correlation between being conventionally attractive and having as it were a great soul quote unquote um or being especially intelligent or being especially warm or kind or anything else but nevertheless and ev- again and again i um i hear this being incorporated into the description yes yes it is it is definitely true and you know i was re- recently listening to a book by Wilkie Collins that it's exactly the same so like physical appearance is strongly linked um to um psychological features and it is something that we we tend to do so there is a lot of research showing that there is this this bias called what is beautiful is good so we tend to attribute positive psychological features to people who um have desirable physical characteristics so what is beautiful is 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 good and um this has been so this has seemed to be quite big part of our psychology. I think it's like a shortcut of our brain. Oh, I like something, I like someone, so it must be good. Mm. Uh, I think something's beautiful, so it must be be good when we don't have a lot of information. And uh, to a certain extent, you know, it can be maybe justifiable, but then I think what I've learned in these years studying lookism is to start reflecting on my own lookism because at some point I realized I was being lookist as well. I was making the same mistake again. So um, perhaps I was paying more attention when an attractive person was talking to me. Maybe I was automatically sitting to an attractive person when getting on the bus, like these small things. Um, and that's why I thought it was really important to start talking about lookism and start telling people that it is important to start thinking about our own our own lookism. Whenever I talk to people and say, "Oh, yeah, I work on lookism, discrimination against attractive people," some common reactions are like, "Oh, I definitely don't do that. I never, I never judge a book by its cover." But I doubt it because there is so much evidence that a lot of people do that. Everybody does that. That I think we're quite a self-deluded about how lookist we are in practice. And other people just deny the phenomenon and they say, "No, no, it's absolutely, absolutely doesn't exist." There is no such privilege. And again, this privilege exists because we have so much data showing that it exists. So, it, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's, not, it, it's not a question anymore whether there is lookism or not in society. Um, but I think it's also something that we learn from, from, from our childhood, from watching and listening to... Um, fairy tales for children in which this linking between good psychological characteristics and um, 
good physical characteristics is even more prominent in a way. Um, so beauty is is always linked to to being a good person, and even the characters who are not beautiful at the beginning, like the ugly duckling or the um, uh, the beast from the Beauty and the Beast. If when they become good, like in the case of the beast, they also become beautiful. He stopped being a beast, and the ugly duckling is also surprised by becoming a beautiful swan. Um, so I think we we learned that from a very young age, but it's I think it's in those stories because it's also in part what our brain does automatically, and I think it is a kind of mechanism that at least in part can can be changed. So if we start thinking about it, we can probably do something about it. Oh, why am I listening to this person now? Why am I I'm talking to five people, but I'm mostly looking at one? And I think we do it quite unconsciously. But if we start asking ourselves question about to whom I'm giving attention right now, uh, next to whom I'm sitting now, um, this kind of thing. For instance, like the tipping. There are so many studies showing that people tend to give a larger tip to the attractive waiter or waiters, even though you know they don't do better than the less attractive uh, other waiter. And if we start thinking about these things, we realize that it is a very ubiquitous phenomenon. And I think that after the point where you're not aware of it, when you live in ignorance of this kind of form of discrimination, well, you cannot be considered blameworthy. But when you start listening about it and you start learning about it, I think then that you have a more obligation to try to change your behavior, uh, to at least try to interfere with your automatic association between what is good and what is beautiful and start trying to do something about it. I uh, So I have a couple of questions about this. The first is um, you explained very nicely elsewhere, but um, for for my listeners... What do you see as the difference between cultural conceptions of beauty and evolutionary conceptions of beauty? Yes, that's an an important point. And I think that has been the main issue in the the debate um, between the 70s and the 90s. So some people believe that um, beauty is... Um, a byproduct of the society in which in which we live. Um, so they would say, look, uh, in some societies, uh, being chubby is considered um, is considered an element of beauty, and in other societies, um, being thin is considered uh, uh, the same as being attractive. Or like, look how some societies like. Um, um, long necklaces to extend the, 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 the neck and so on and so forth. In other societies, that's not considered attractive at all. So they focus a lot on cultural um, differences or on different aesthetic preferences at different time in human history uh, to point out that um, aesthetic preferences are, are, are a byproduct of the society in which we live. Another approach to um, the origin of of beauty is um, an evolutionary one. So according to this other approach, beauty is the byproduct of evolution. 
during our evolution, some features um, were more likely to uh, some features you were signaling um, good health, like a smooth skin or um, symmetry, um, were were sign of fitness, and um, therefore we started to consider them beautiful because whatever is useful for um for evolution for reproduction for survival and is also considered beautiful so these people say well look but in all societies uh, and at all times in human history having a smooth skin or having a sort of proportion between uh, waist and um and and shoulder or waist and hip was considered um, beautiful. So there are some elements of beautiful or beauty that uh, don't really change in any society and in no time in history. So how would you reconcile these these two elements? Because we have evidence in support of of both this assumption. I think that the the solution is to understand that. Some aesthetic preferences are influenced by society and some other aesthetic preferences are the byproduct of our evolution. So they're hardwired in in our brain. Um, So for instance, um, when we talk about body weight, it is true that it it changes. um, Like preferences for a certain BMI, certain weight change through society and... um, and this means also that that can be changed um, through societal intervention as well. So I think that the body positivity movement has done a lot um, in this sense. Uh, when I was growing up, the only uh, kind of woman who was considered attractive was someone extremely thin and extremely tall and extremely blonde. Uh, it is in part still the same, but it has changed quite a bit uh, in the past decade. But um, and we can also see this a lot with Caucasian features. Caucasian features are the ones that are mostly represented in magazines and in movies. But that and that makes people believe that you know Caucasian people might be the most beautiful. But in fact, there is no evolutionary reason to believe that. And um, indeed, there are a lot of attractive people in all sorts of it, not in all ethnicities. So uh, all sorts of features can be considered beautiful and, and are considered beautiful. And when we only focus on some features, then yes, they become the most dominant. But we can quickly change that by just portraying um, different ethnicity and ethnicities and different features in, um, in, fashion, um, in fashion or in magazines or in movies. On the other hand, um, it is also true that there are some features that we always we always find attractive, um, like symmetry, um, is something we find we find beautiful not only in humans but also in animals in buildings. We do like symmetry, and this is due to our evolutionary history. And I think it's 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 very difficult to change this kind of preferences that are so um, hardwired in our brain. And um, I don't think that changing the cover girl of a certain magazine is going to do much for that preference because it is more more hardwired. I think that 
understanding this is very important when we want to find strategies to um, to fight lookism or discrimination of attractive people. Because I think that for some features like body weight or uh, ethnic uh, features, we can really do a lot if we change society. So by just portraying more people with certain features, but just portraying chubby women, we can really change the standard of beauty, what is considered attractive at a certain point in our society. But we can't really do much at a societal level if we want to change, if we, if we want to change a preference for uh, symmetry. So in that case, I think solutions like cosmetic, sur- cosmetic surgery are way more effective. And I think that when we have that kind of knowledge and if we can really figure out which aesthetic preferences are genetically or evolutionarily determined and which ones are uh, determined by society, then we can be really, really effective. And it's kind of like what we were saying before. Yes, there are some things that are like um, maybe very difficult for some people, but then when we understand what is the problem or like how things work, then we can find a solution. I have a very solution-oriented approach to philosophy and to life in general. So I really like to go to the bottom of the issues because I really care about finding a solution. And now we have a lot of op- options for for finding solutions through cosmetic surgery as well in the future through genetic intervention. And we can, thanks to social media, uh, social Socially constructed preferences can also be changed very, way more quickly. So we are in a good position now to to fight lookism. Mm. I I think that the cosmetic surgery is something I feel very um, ambivalent about. So on the one hand, I can I can um, I can't see any reason to deny somebody who is a consenting adult permission to change their body in any way they wish. And I can also see why you would want to change your body to become more attractive. There are so many clear advantages to that. And there's a limit to how much you can change society. Well, you as an individual probably can't do much to change society. What you can do is adapt to what society, to society's expectations, in regard to beauty at least. If you have a very... Um, if, if, if you have a hair lip or you have a disfigured nose, then it, it seems like a clear, clearly the obvious and probably the best solution for you if you want it is to have cosmetic surgery. But I did live in Argentina, which is the world capital of cosmetic surgery, I think. I believe it still is. And um, that's there seemed to be just a such an atmosphere among women in particular of chasing a kind of aesthetic perfection mm. and so much so much obsession with um, how women looked um, and I mean on the part of women ourselves yeah. so I um, I found it so difficult to have um, a a converse a friendship with a woman in which at, um, we didn't have at least sorry I'm, 
uh, my sentence structure has gone haywire today for some reason. But mm-hmm. um, in the friendships with the women that I had in Argentina, a very high proportion of conversations, um, let's say every time I met them, it would be mentioned at least once, uh, were about some, some dissatisfaction they had with their body, mm. were about the new diet they were trying or how unhappy they were about some mold that they wanted to have removed or um, about whether or not a dress suited them. Um, and many women I knew had had uh, breast augmentations and often at quite a young age, so in their teens, for example, um, many, and these weren't women with necessarily tiny, tiny breasts who were very flat-chested. These were women with breasts of a normal size who felt that they couldn't be attractive or successful unless they had D-cup-sized breasts. Um, And I find that very... It seems like a very frustrating endeavor to be constantly searching for physical perfection. Yeah. It also felt very, often very unrealistic because often these women were very beautiful to begin with. And I think that now that I'm 51, when I look back at how I looked in my 20s, I realize, gosh, I wish I had known in my 20s how beautiful I was and how beautiful almost everybody else was around me, um, just by virtue of the fact that we were in our 20s. Um, Mm. So it feels like a kind of failure to appreciate the beauty they have. Also, it's since inevitably aging is going to happen, it seems like a very futile endeavor in that sense to um, hope to kind of turn back or hold back time. And it also, I felt that it, it just occupied so much of our mental energy. Yeah. Um, so I, do you have thoughts about how, um, how lookism affects men and women differently? Yes, there is, there is um, some evidence that um, women are more, um, are judged more harshly because of their appearance, both by men and by other women um so um this is also for like evolutionary reasons apparently so men are obviously interested in figuring out whether a woman is attractive and if she's fit for reproduction and women are worried about competitors so they uh, keep an eye on the appearance of other women um, as a result, of course, it's not what we think normally when we judge the appearance of a person, but as a result of this evolutionary process, uh, the appearance of women is, is taken more, to, more into account than men's. And it seems that men's appearance um, is less important for their mating strategies. So, apparently, I mean, this is like a bit of a reduction, but... Um, allow me to just summarize. Of course, there are obviously differences and so on and so forth. But in general, women are looking more um, for somebody who is capable of protecting them, providing for them. This is through evolution. Of course, not now a lot of women work independent, have their own money. But this changed very, very recently, like 
50 years ago in some places. In some places, women are still not allowed to, to work and to make their own money. So we're not talking about a process that's completely ended. So in a man, what is considered more attractive is his capacity for providing. And um, their physical appearance is definitely a plus because we know that all this research on both men and women and the ones who are unattractive are penalized in various realms of life, including romantic relationships, but not as much as, as women. Um, so the reason number of... Um, there are some evolutionary explanations for this, but also social ones. And, you know, again, like the pressure on women on being prettier and being attractive, wearing some certain kinds of clothes, having certain kinds of hair is, is much stronger than it is, it is for, for, for men. It, is, it has become somehow acceptable to have different expectations when it comes to physical appearance, respect to men and, and women. And that's a social phenomenon. Um, I think you're right when you say that the possibility of having cosmetic surgery, in a way, puts even more pressure on people because before you couldn't do anything about it. You didn't like your nose, well, you had to live with it. Now you can change it. So should you change it? And then after you change it, should you also change your ears or you know have something done to your belly, to your breast? Um, it becomes um, very, very difficult. So I'm thinking of writing, starting to write in a book about cosmetic surgery. And I think that cosmetic surgery is very, very helpful for people who actually have deformities or who have an appearance that can be dramatically enhanced by cosmetic surgery. So, and... Um, like if you have protruding ears, that, that can be an easy quick. If you're worried about your child being bullied or like if, if you have a very big nose and you want to to remove to, to, to bring your size down and so on and so forth. Also, there is no clear correlation between how large a disfigurement is and how much people are concerned about it. So it is quite puzzling that people who have maybe a small scar are more concerned about the physical appearance than people who have um, a quite large disfigurement. We don't understand why it is the case, but um, I guess it also has to do in part with personality. So some people can become like really obsessed with the way with the way they look. Um, but I also again I think society has has a role there so if you if you spend any time on instagram and if you look um like social media tv like everybody seems to be perfect and i blame in part photoshop for that like there are people who don't even look like themselves so if you look at these models how they look in an, on instagram and how they look in reality they're you know you can hardly tell it's the same person in, in many cases because there's been so much editing, photoshopping, modifying, and some standards of beauty are so insanely high that nobody can live up to that, not even the people we're trying to look like. And um, this is where, again, like society can, can make a huge difference. So um, all this editing of pictures and, you know, just... Um, smoothing out the skin so that nobody has ever a wrinkle 
or even a pore on their skin. It's absolutely unrealistic. People have pores on the skin. I mean, that's how human skin is made and looks like. They have pores. Uh, people have wrinkles. Even very young people have some wrinkles. And and it has become incredibly frustrating and difficult for people to compare themselves with these ideals that don't exist. When you were a woman, you know, uh, in the 50s, the 60s, and 70s, you would compare yourself with, I don't know, Marilyn Monroe or, um, you know, other attractive women at the time. And they were extremely beautiful, but they were also real. So they would have some defects, um, you know, um, Marilyn Monroe had a little bit of a belly. Have you ever seen anyone with a little bit of a belly in the last years? No, I haven't seen anyone because if you have a belly that's completely cancelled, it's modified, it's edited out. So we're not comparing ourselves with beautiful people from, you know, our same species, but from some hybrid between um, computer image and a real person, and we will never be good enough for that. And I think that that's a problem we really need to solve. Like these absurd um, standards of beauty that are not even promoted by cosmetic, because even cosmetic surgery can do that much. But in, <laughs> uh, it can improve a bit, but only if you have some, you know, real um, defect that you can you can improve but a lot of people who go overboard with cosmetic surgery have the opposite effect they look worse um so because cosmetic surgery at least at the moment has limited um resources I and mean, you cannot do better than that what can do miraculously change your appearance is computer editing of a face or a body and I think that's what we are comparing ourselves with. And that's what making people obsess over their appearance. And I think we really need to do something about that. Um, it, it's extremely unhealthy. Yeah, I certainly, I have a friend who has a beauty uh, YouTube channel. And the um, I have also learned that on YouTube, without without Photoshop, but just the way in which the studio lighting is done on YouTube. Mm. Um, she also looks as though she doesn't have a single pore on her skin. And a couple of times she came up close to the camera to purposefully show people that her skin doesn't actually look like that in real life, that if you get close, you can see she has uh, acne scarring and she has some visible pores. She has a few spots and blackheads and things and, and a little bit of crow's feet around the eyes. But when she's sitting back in the normal position from which you're giving the talk on YouTube, she has so much soft lighting and makeup, which in real life looks like a lot of makeup, but on YouTube just looks like nothing. Just yeah. looks like that's her natural appearance. Yeah. That uh, she has this completely flawless appearance and she's not attempting to do anything deceptive she is just trying to have a successful youtube channel yeah. and th therefore she needs to look as attractive as other people who do youtube and so she needs to do what they do which is have the right kind of mirrors and lighting and all that um but it's amazing how much difference even that makes having the yeah. right setup for filming extraordinary yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, it is the lighting, it is the makeup, it is the editing, but none of these people looks like the look on Instagram in, in real life. But we people forget about it. I mean, our brain is not, it's not, doesn't process information that way. So whenever you look at Instagram, you always feel miserable. Um, and it, it, it's hard, even for people like me who study this, it's like, oh yeah, this person probably doesn't, doesn't really look like me. Doesn't really look like that. Uh, you know, maybe she's more normal. She has pores like me and wrinkles and, you know, a gray hair or, you know, scars like every human being on earth, even the most beautiful women have that. So I think that what, what really matters in this respect is to bring standards of beauty to something more realistic. It doesn't mean you know, we have necessarily start to portray an attractive people necessarily, um, but as like human, just like somebody who looks normal because there's nothing absolute, there's nothing normal in how people are represented on social media and in, in magazines these days. It's, it's all fake. And I can imagine how people really feel under a lot of pressure because it is like raising the standards, right? I mean, you know, your boyfriend looks at these pictures and imagines that, oh, why does my girlfriend have pores? Doesn't it look like people have pores? Like, what's wrong with my girlfriend? She has pores. Oh, my God. Um, so this is damaging, like, everyone. And, you know, this applies to both women and men, talking about women, probably because I'm a woman and probably because... It is indeed the case that women are more affected by this, but I'm sure that a lot of boys or men um, also scroll through Instagram and 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 feel like under a lot of pressure, like there's something wrong with with their body. And um, we say before, I am against uh, photo editing on magazines, and I am against uh, photo editing on on. Social media, of course, you can't do anything to prohibit people from doing that, but at least there should be a disclaimer, a reminder somewhere on the website reminding what you're looking at is not. Um, I have so I have a, uh, a couple of questions that people sent in for you, Francesca, yeah. or sent in quote unquote, <laughs> posted <laughs> to me. Um, first of all, Jay Shapiro um, requested that I ask you about vaginoplasty. <laughs> yeah we did the podcast and we touched upon that um yes i think that's one of the the one of the most common um or like the one kind of surgery that had the largest increase in the last years was vaginoplasty and um and i was just surprised by that because um i thought of all the areas of the body that are exposed to to the gaze of other people. Why would you worry about one part that probably you know your partner is going to see, but not many other other people? And and it turns out that and also like I was surprised because I never I never talked about you know when I was a student or when I was a child. But even now I talk about my friends with appearance like oh my god they have such a beautiful breast oh my god they have such a beautiful hair but we never look at our vagina, so I never, <laughs> I never looked at my vagina and said, "Oh my God, it's beautiful or not." But then I started asking my friends about it, like, "Oh, you know, what do you, what do you think? What is this thing coming from?" And um, 
and they started saying, oh, yes, of course, there are there are beautiful vaginas and lovely vaginas. And like, how, where do you feel these vaginas? And then, of course, I'm a woman, I don't really watch porn. Turns out that it comes from porn, of course. And, um, and then because, you know, in porn, they need to really show vaginas and penises from very close up. Um, and then, you know, women don't have any, any men don't have any um, pubic hair. So it's all very visible. And as we decided, there are some types of vaginas that are more attractive than others. Um, and now a lot of people, even young people, are having vaginoplasty that before used to be common more among like women had like a lot of children and perhaps their vagina had had some um, problem during the pregnancy or after the, during the delivery and I think this is a sign of how you know media in this case porn has affected our preferences because I can't really imagine that we have an evolutionary preference for a certain kind of of vagina that seems really unlikely because it's not something we see in large amounts we can't compare uh and you know pretty much vaginas they all do the same thing and same goes for penises so there is no evolutionary reason for preparing a certain shape of vagina to another one and i'm pretty sure men didn't have these preferences up to the point where porn became so widely available everywhere and now there are all these vaginas depicted everywhere so they said that, oh let's say that this type of vagina is very beautiful and um and i think this is a very good example how you know societal influence um actually had an influence how people really feel uncomfortable with their own body even those areas that should not really subject to scrutiny like vaginas mm. The other, another question that I have is from William Costello, um, who asks, he says, I'd love to know Francesca's thoughts on the incelosphere. Mm. Yes. Um, so the incels are involuntary celibates. So they're people who are um, discriminated because of their appearance, at least according to them, and they cannot have a romantic partner or sex because of the way they look and um, in one case or two one of these insults um, started shooting against people uh, that he considered either competitors so attractive males or women girls who had rejected them and um, I think that and the, the, the issue of insults is, is quite complex I've read some articles suggesting um that you know no there is no right to sex so um people you know but on the other hand yes it would be better if everybody could have sex so what should we, should we do i don't think to be honest it's just a matter of sex i think it's really a reduction to to say that the problem with insults is that they cannot have sex i think that's like everybody else they want to have relationships apart from sex, hopefully sexual relationships and be acknowledged and, 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 you know, um, interact um, with, with other people having some admiration or some benefits from, from their looks. I have to say in some cases, insults are not really unattractive. So I was um, looking up and reading, there was a Reddit um 
paid for insults then was cancelled after these violent accidents but then there are still like some features online some 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 insults are actually unattractive and i think uh, again that you know uh, we can't really change society let's change the person and i think that cosmetic surgery should be available and probably a lot of cosmetic surgery should also be for free for people who cannot afford it and in most um, system with a public health system like in europe uh, you can have some cosmetic surgery for free but it's just a very small number of um, cosmetic surgeries that you know for very serious major deformities i think we should provide also enhancing cosmetic surgery for free at least to some people and it seems that definitely in the cases of insults who are really upset about the, the way they look in some other cases they're not they're not unattractive um they get convinced that they are unattractive and therefore they behave like they are and in some cases they're just boys who need um to have a new clothes nice hairdo and um and learn how to interact with girls because they're like extremely socially awkward so i think that there are two type of insults there are the ones that actually need cosmetic surgery the ones who need just to be enhanced a bit but you know that they're not unattractive they're just not well well kept and they would benefit from you know from learning to socialize with women a lot of men don't seem to to be good at doing that um, for some reason and they kind of reinforce this idea that you know women hate them women dislike them uh, because they're insults and because they're they're you know women are mean and they're too ugly but in a lot of cases i think the psychological support would really would really help not in all cases though i think in other cases um, cosmetic surgery would be the the best option yeah i i, I tend to think also that although um Women, so I'm generalizing, of course, wildly here, um, but on the whole, I feel that women have a tendency to be to obsess about our appearance too much, mm. um, and that is a hell of a lot of intellectual energy, and that could be could be put into something more productive. Absolutely, but I also feel that men um, don't think about their appearance enough, and. I find it a bit annoying that um, I think that men don't make slightly more of an effort. I wouldn't like men to become as kind of anxious and obsessive as many women are, um, or most of the women I've known are, uh, to be honest. But I would like them to. I feel that a lot of men seem to think that it's there is no point in even attempting to be as attractive as they can be physically. Um, and that, uh, and I, I don't mean, um, I don't even mean in the more difficult ways, like for example, going to the gym and things and being slender and toned. Um, I'm not really in a position to criticize anyone for, be, for not being slender and toned right now, since I'm carrying the 20-20-20, um, as we're calling it, on my body. Um, <laughs> lockdown has not been has not been kind to my physique, but I I I mean um, quite simpler things like shaving with a bit more care and wearing uh, not getting dressed in the dark, um, not wearing socks with sandals and uh, <laughs> yeah, like um, 
sandals it should be legal um, you know using using an anti-dandruff shampoo and putting on deodorant um, yeah, <laughs> I, I just i feel that um a lot of men seem to take a kind of pride in and not caring at all and that that i find a little bit annoying <laughs> yeah i think I think it, it is true that, you know, women care more, men care less. And maybe after a certain age, men really not, not care much um, at all. And but, and maybe after, you know, they get married and, and they have secured a partner. Uh, in part because society didn't ask them to. So like, you know, for evolutionary reason, for social reason, men didn't have to be that attractive was enough for them to be quite successful. Um, but I think that this is going to change again because the balance now, um, you know, women don't need men as much as they did. Uh, now women work, make their own money. Uh, sometimes they're more than men, uh, but as much as men. Um, and therefore men are now more under pressure to improve their appearance. And uh, I think it's showing up again. Like I follow quite a bit like cosmetic surgery for the book I'm writing. And it seems that there is an increase. Of course, it's nothing comparable to how much cosmetic surgery women get. Men really have a small percentage of the uh, cosmetic surgery that is um, uh, performed every year in the world. But the percentage is increasing also for men. And I think this comes from knowing that uh, being the breadwinner is not enough and it's not even required. Um, so I think we're going to have an interesting change, a shift. And I think, and unfortunately, in a sense, this means that as a society, we will all become more obsessed with appearance, both, you know, because also men will become being more worried. But hopefully then men, women will start um feeling less obsessed about their appearance because they will know that well you know um they can work they don't need a man so they don't even need to to find a partner um so i think that this change in uh i think it's the you know women used to work in the past but they were working like in the farm or together with their husband you didn't have like you know doctor women lawyer women like entrepreneurs women just you know making their own money starting their own business so this is pretty new so i think that this is also going to change things with respect to how much men and women um will care about their appearance in the, in the next decades decades and and hopefully technology will make it easier for us to change our appearance um, that's my hope without oh, yeah. quite so much maintenance Yes, um, yes. No, I think, you know, I I always say that, you know, aging is one of the worst things and not just because it changes your appearance, which I think is a bad thing. Um, I mean, everybody ages. I don't like it. I, I don't like aging myself. I don't think anybody enjoys it. Uh, but also because it is the reason why we, we die mostly. Like if you can uh, target aging, then you have sold a very large percentage of human of the problems of humans so i'm surprised there is not more talking about aging um in in academia in society in general i mean 
that seems like a pretty big problem. We die because we age. I mean, there are also accident stuff, but, you know, aging is the main reason why people die. Francesca, is there anything that you have wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? Um, or anything you wish that I had asked you? Well, I, I think we, we covered like a lot of, lot of, a lot of things, and yeah, I'm trying to think about all the things we discussed from the journal um, and to Lukeism, and um, I I can't really. Well, one thing I would like to add is that, uh, but it's just like promotion. <laughs> I, I want yes, to promote the journal. Um, I really hope that we, so we're looking for donations uh, because the journal is um, open access. And uh, so far, you know, we don't have a lot of donations, so we need more donations because we have expenses to pay. Um, and also we look forward to receive more submissions as I said, we're waiting to have enough good papers to publish our first issue. So I really encourage people to make a donation and to send to us their good controversial papers because uh, we're li- really looking forward to receiving more. Great. Um, do you have a Patreon for the journal? We don't, but on our um, on our website, journalcontroversialideas.org, um, there is a PayPal button. Uh, also, people who donate from the US, so donating dollars, are in tax exempt because we have uh, we are a charity, for, uh, so we have a foundation. So um, donations from the US are uh, tax free, and uh, there are also instructions about how to pay without PayPal using other strategies. But also, people can email me if they want to make a donation um, in. Um, in some other ways i think paypal is the easiest but we also have a bank account and they can transfer money to transfer wise so we have all the options great i'll put all of the links in the show notes francesca it's been a real pleasure to talk to you for me as well thank you so much I had a lot of fun the only thing that is missing is your dog <laughs> i'm longing <laughs> i'm longing to meet your dog <laughs> you will meet her she's the best <laughs> Thank you so much and have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, We hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, 
write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.